Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Boston Sanctuary since 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the Boston metropolitan area and beyond. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. We're located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. I always loved how the mother, Sophia, on the TV show The Golden Girls, started her stories. Picture it, she would say. Picture it, Sicily, 1934. Well, that is how I would like to start my sermon today. Not bringing you back to girlhood remembrances of Sicily, but asking you to transport yourself back in time to the mid-1800s, to a farm in rural Illinois. Picture it. Hamilton, Illinois, 1850. A young girl stands on a tree stump in the front yard of her farm, not far from the bank of the Mississippi River. She is amusing her family by preaching to them in a loud and confident voice from her perch on the stump. The performance seems harmless enough, even to her mother, who is sure that her daughter Mary will grow up to work for the church, but in a woman's supportive role. She will lend her hand in the kitchen and pray from the pews. But Mary has other ideas. Every day, she runs to the orchard to meet her best friend, Eleanor, who lives nearby. The two are inseparable. They are a comical pair. Mary is tall, thin, and elegant. Eleanor is sturdy, strong, and plain, but laughing all the time. Mary is good in front of a crowd, always with polished, articulate things to say. Eleanor is better with people, easily conversing with an individual or small circle. They both love to read. As a teenager, Mary sets up the Hawthorne Literary Society. She gets Eleanor and all of the brothers and sisters involved, and they read book reviews, essays, poetry, and plays. They hold debates and even host some guest lecturers, including the local Unitarian minister, Oscar Clute. Mary takes a break from all that intellectual seriousness and organizing and goes to Eleanor's house for some fun. But their favorite place to be together is under an apple tree in Eleanor's back orchard. They spend hours there, and it is there when the girls are in their early 20s that they pledge to spend their lives together, serving the world as a team. Marriage is not for them, they decide. They are modern women. They know how capable they are and don't want anyone telling them how to do what they already know how to do for themselves. They dream of graduating from college, 
but both are forced home after only a year at Iowa's State University. They take it upon themselves to continue their own education. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Robert Browning, Theodore Parker. They are always reading, reading, and figuring out how they can best serve the world. Fast forward a few years. Picture it. Humboldt, Iowa, 1883. It is the cusp of a new century, and life is good but hard. It's still the frontier, with no conveniences. Surviving the winter is a struggle. But every Sunday, the local farmers lay down their work and ride in their horse and buggies to church. The sermons are rousing and thought-provoking. The words of the hymns have been changed slightly to be more inclusive. There are lay voices involved in the service as well as the clergy. Throughout the week, families have been to church for lectures and dinners. The church itself is a little like a family, like a home. This is not church as remembered from the East, but a new model formed to meet the needs of the people. Eleanor is there, giving instruction on religious education to the same kids that she sees during the week as the town's school principal. And up at the front, preaching to a packed house, is Mary. Can you picture it? It's an amazing but true story of Mary Safford and Eleanor Gordon, two women who would become the unofficial leaders of a band of liberal women ministers on the frontier at the tail end of the 19th century. Although the term had not been dreamed up yet, Mary and Eleanor were undoubtedly part of the same caress. That is, their souls had been magnetized to the same purpose in life, to spread liberal religion as two of the first ordained female ministers and to mentor other women into the ministry as well. Having battled bureaucracy and isolation in her own ministry, Mary became a mentor for other aspiring female ministers, young girls who were at home, reading, reading, and dreaming of how they could best serve the world. Years before women achieved the right to vote, these 20 or so liberal women bonded together against adversity to form the first professional network of female ministers. Joining Mary and Eleanor in their ministry were Florence Buck, Mary Colson, Caroline Bartlett Crane, Mary Jenny Howe, Ida Holton, Rowena Morse Mann, and Helen Grace Putnam among others. Humboldt, Iowa became the headquarters of what came to be known as the Iowa Sisterhood. I was fascinated by this early story of female ministry when I learned about it in seminary. And today, I am equally fascinated 
by another story from our Unitarian past. Picture it. Boston, Massachusetts, 1826. William Ellery Channing, the father of American Unitarianism, is the minister at the Federal Street Church, the predecessor to our own Arlington Street Church. Unitarianism is thriving. Nine of the 16 churches in the city profess a Unitarian theology. The Unitarian churches are packed with the educated and affluent. They are the bankers and merchants who have benefited from Boston's new manufacturing industries. And outside the churches, the population of the city of Boston is growing rapidly, drawing young men and women in from the surrounding communities to work in these new growing industries. The economics and demographics of Boston have shifted. The ranks of the working poor have swelled. The Unitarians who have rejected the Calvinist doctrine of predestination have a new challenge. In his study of this period of history, Reverend Bill Sinkford writes, Channing cannot view the poor as sinful and depraved as the Calvinists did. He can't simply write off the poor as none of his concern. He believes in salvation by character and therefore believes that the solution to poverty lies in the religious education of the poor, facilitating their moral and spiritual development. Called by his conscience and theology to do something for the expanding class of working poor, Channing calls upon his lifelong friend and college roommate, Joseph Tuckerman. Channing is good in front of a crowd, always with polished, articulate things to say. Tuckerman is better with people, easily conversing with an individual or a small circle. Sound familiar? Channing is like Mary, doing his best work from the pulpit. Tuckerman, himself a Unitarian minister, is like Eleanor comfortable in pastoral ministry, in sitting with people, visiting their homes. And these men, too, are figuring out how they can best serve the world. In 1826, Channing arranges for the Boston Unitarian ministers to call Tuckerman to a ministry at large. Picture it. Tuckerman, a man of wealth and esteem, begins walking among the poor on the streets of Boston. He starts his ministry simply by talking with the people he meets and getting himself invited into their homes. Financed at first by his own accumulated wealth, Sinkford writes, he offers modest financial help from his poor purse, a cord of wood for heating in the winter, money for clothes or food. And he comes back again and again. Within 18 months, he has 250 families under his care. More from Sinkford's history. 
Tuckerman and Channing meet weekly to discuss the progress of the ministry at large. They begin to raise money to support the ministry from congregants of the Unitarian churches. Soon, free chapels are founded in poor areas of the city to house this ministry and offer worship and religious education to offer resources. In 1834, a new organization, the Benevolent Fraternity of Churches, is formed to hold this growing ministry. Can you picture it? It is a new way of doing church. It is the beginning of the modern concept of social work. It is the beginning of what will become goodwill. And it is the beginning of the Unitarian Universalist Urban Ministry. The UU Urban Ministry in Roxbury, formerly the Benevolent Fraternity of Unitarian Churches, is where I spend my days now, at the beginning of my own ministry. We have an after-school program for middle and high schoolers in Roxbury and surrounding neighborhoods. We have a domestic violence shelter that is one of the only shelters to accept gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender victims of domestic violence. And we have a support group for men in transition who are facing the myriad challenges of their urban setting. Last week, I joined the ranks of Unitarian Universalist ministers, over half of whom are women. And as I begin to figure out how I might best serve the world, sometimes I feel that I am part of the same caress as Joseph Tuckerman, Mary Safford, and Eleanor Gordon. It is powerful, this sense of connection through time to figures in history. It reminds me of that Indigo Girls song about Virginia Woolf. The lyrics go, here's a young girl on a kind of telephone line through time. The voice at the other end comes like a long lost friend. So I know I'm all right. My life will come, my life will go. Still I feel it's all right. It is powerful to feel a part of something larger than yourself larger than your own work. It can keep us going when the struggle feels too much, when the task at hand feels too big. It can help us to remember that it's all right. To complete this morning's history lesson, I feel I have to muddy the waters a bit, acknowledging that our history has not all been onward and upward, that there are some dark sides to our denominational past that need to be talked about as well. I can't tell you that the momentum of this prophetic sisterhood carried women ministers into the 20th century in a continuous stream, or that the idea of setting up chapels for the urban poor was not complicated by self-interest and prejudice. The reality is that Channing and the other Unitarian ministers supported Tuckerman's ministry at large 
in part because it was a way to ease their consciences without changing how they themselves did church. It was a way to minister to the poor without inviting them into their sanctuaries. The reality is that as the century turned and the institution of the church was strengthened, the growth of women in the ministry stopped abruptly and their numbers plummeted, not to be reversed until the 1970s when a new sisterhood was born. As a woman entering the ministry and as a community minister, I feel I am in direct line of descent from some courageous forebearers. When Kim led the laying on of hands at my ordination a week ago and called upon a great cloud of witnesses, the Iowa Sisterhood and Joseph Tuckerman were named aloud. I chose them because I owe my admiration and gratitude to them for paving the way for me. But I know I am and we are, the inheritor of a complicated legacy, one that includes both the courage, creativity, and persistence of the first female ministers and the resistance and prejudice of the institution that fought against them, one that includes both the generosity and caring of a man who went from house to house in the ghettos of Boston to make sure people had enough to eat, and the condescension and complacency of the Boston elite who did not want the poor in their churches. In her book, The Prophetic Sisterhood, Tucker writes about the Iowa Sisterhood that their story speaks of the deep and sustaining power that comes from affirming our place in an unbroken line of kindred seekers and prophets. To me, their stories speak of the deep and sustaining power that comes not only from seeing ourselves as part of a larger history, but also from seeking out in our own lives the support of kindred spirits. The Iowa Sisterhood succeeded out there on the frontier because they banded together. The benevolent fraternity had an impact, and today the Unitarian Universalist Urban Ministry has an impact because churches joined together and continue to join together in the work of social justice. They did not work alone, and neither do we. I can tell you that this makes all the difference in our work in Roxbury. When we are faced with enormous challenges, it is so easy to feel overwhelmed. When we are faced with our complex history, it is tempting to disconnect ourselves from it. But maybe instead, we could all imagine ourselves as part of some sort of invisible or visible karas, people working towards some seen or unseen goal our souls magnetized to the same purpose, sometimes getting it right and sometimes getting it wrong, but always part of something larger than ourselves. Imagine a world 
where we are strengthened by a sense of connection to an unseen tapestry of others working toward the beloved community. Imagine each of us feeling a part of a sisterhood or brotherhood so that whatever we decide to devote our lives to, we are not alone. Imagine it. Actually, picture it. Amen. Blessed be.